morning. I welcome you to find your seats once again. Fantastic. If I have not had a chance to meet you yet myself, my name is Mark, one of the pastors on staff here as well. And we're really glad that you came to uh, spend some time with us this morning and to learn, to worship, and to encounter uh, our living God, whom we're here to serve. Well, this week we enter into a new, bit of a new phase in our sermon series. We've been talking about this book with, written by a gentleman named Sky Jatani. And in there, he talks about four postures, four common postures, four common ways in which people tend to relate towards God, all of which have degrees of truth to them and yet fall a little bit short of the highest calling we talked about last week, which is for us to be with God in relationship with the Father through the Son. If you missed that, you can go back and uh, watch or listen to that podcast online through our website at westmanos.org. And today we're going to be talking as we move into unpacking each of the four postures individually. And this week is the first one. Now, you might remember back to the very first Sunday when I first introduced this series, I mentioned that the series is going to be three things. Number one, it's going to be insightful. We're going to be talking about why many people struggle to engage in faith or engage in the church. Why a lot of people tend to, over time, disengage with their faith or the church. And, and what is it about sometimes the messages of Christianity that repel individuals? We're going to talk about some insightful things today that relate to those exact categories. I also mentioned this series will be challenging. I think this uh, particular Sunday is, is no exception for that at all as we contemplate the way that we relate to God. The topic we talk about today, I believe, is a common one for a lot of people in the world, especially within the Western church in which we here exist. But then also I mentioned this series is going to be affirming because before we are done today, we are going to have a bit of a challenge. We are going to be informed, but before we're done today, I really, truly pray and hope that you are encouraged and that we can once again affirm the fact that God loves you. And that God, above all, desires for you to extend, to accept his extended hand and come into community with him and with others whom he loved, died for, and has brought together into his family as well. So as we start to unpack the first posture today, we're going to be talking about what does it mean for life under God? Now, when we talk about these postures and contexts of relationship, and then we hear the word under, it's not uncommon for our mind to kind of construe that idea in a negative sense. This idea of being kind of under somebody's thumb or, or under the authority of another person. Whether that person in your life would be a boss, a parent, a teacher, a, a spouse, a coach, all these different places where we're in relationship, where we possibly have somebody with authority above us, that can be construed in a negative sense where we feel like we're under their thumb. Man, I missed my quota two weeks in a row. If I miss it again this week, my boss is going to fire me. Or I have to obey every single rule. I got to do the whole chore chart that mom and dad put on the fridge. If I don't, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Maybe I'll even get a whooping this week if I don't follow that chore chart that's up on the wall. Apparently, that just became uh, possible in schools back in Georgia this month as well, if you had heard about that. And that parents are approving teachers to, to discipline in that fashion again as well. Or maybe you had a coach, and the coach says, if you don't put more points back up on the board, I'm going to make you the water boy. That's the end result unless you follow through. We feel like we're under the thumb, under the negative authority of another person. And this exists in our life, but when that's the nature of the relationship we find ourselves in, it's actually a fear-based motivation that has negative impacts upon how we relate to one another. It has these negative consequences where we just conform out of a desire to avoid the punishment. The dynamic that has upon our relationships is we don't tend to build strong bonds. We tend to have rather weak relationships with other people when that's the dynamic. 
if you find yourself in a relationship like that, there's a good chance one day you'll need counseling. You'll end up having to probably get some counseling or you'll get invited to the Jerry Springer show, which is where a lot of those negative types of relationships find themselves. But in the Bible, we find that being under the authority of another person isn't automatically a negative thing. And we know there's teachings about that, that we are to submit ourselves under the authority of other people, even difficult people at times. And so this idea of being under the authority of another is not unbiblical by any means. We know, for example, the Ten Commandments, one of the most popular Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. You're under the authority of mom and dad. Later on in the New Testament, uh, Peter, writing to uh, Jewish people who were scattered throughout regions where they were under persecution, where they were being... uh, kind of cast aside in society, he tells them, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether that be the emperor or be the governor, for this is God's will for your life. And so it it seems like there's this possibility that we can have a different motivation, that we can have a different view of our relationships other than seeing ourselves under the thumb of somebody else. And when that motivation changes, so too does the dynamics of the relationship where instead of fearing the punishment of mom and dad, we decide that, you know, I may not like all the rules, but out of love and respect for who they are, out of the fact that I know that they gave me this thing called life, and the fact that they care for me, and I can trust them, I will abide by the rules of the house. At work, you may not like the people you work with. You may think your boss is is out to lunch at times, but you decide to follow through on the commitments that you made because you know you're part of a team, And because by doing so, you set a good example and you honor God and you can show other people what it means to work and to live in a godly fashion. That work can be worship. Or maybe in a marriage situation where you you need to seek to find that balance between your own desires and the desires of another person. And as we come to be able to do that, we are demonstrations of love and grace and unity, which again reflects God in our lives and in our relationships. Well, the same problems with these dynamics can happen not just within our human relationships, but it can also exist in our relationship with God. The posture that we adopt, the motivation that we adopt can have these same dynamics. Do we see ourselves as being under the thumb of God? If so, or if that's the message we're conveying, we shouldn't be surprised if the response then is people who are fearful, people who interpret God as being unapproachable, or is our desire to follow and to abide by his instructions, not as a means of establishing the relationship, not as a means of avoiding negative things or receiving good things, but is our desire to follow and abide because we know that he loves us, because we know we can trust him, because we know that he wants nothing but what's best for us, even if we don't fully understand or comprehend what that is in each moment. But here's the thing. This isn't unique to us. This isn't new to the 21st century. But we can actually look throughout history and see these relational dynamics between man and God existing. Throughout all time and throughout all space, really since the beginning of the studying of culture, this type of a scenario has existed. Uh, Anthropologists, for example, when they look at what religion is, the way that an anthropologist would define religion, is they see it as an attempt for a people group to, to appease or influence a deity through elaborate and sophisticated rituals and beliefs. 
Now, we would have a bit of a different understanding of, of what religion is, but, but looking over all time, all culture, all nations, and all different religions that have existed throughout that span of time, that's, that's how anthropologists tend to, to define it, is that it's these human constructs in an attempt to appease a deity and to gain some sense of influence and control over an otherwise uncontrollable universe. And I'll show you some examples. We can see this. For example, if you were to look at a very simple tribal community, whether you go back in time a long time or if you're ahead to, to another country where it, it's very, very low tech, outside of the uh, social structures, there's not a lot of influence, they haven't got these high, uh, high levels of, of theology and of structures around the religion, and yet they live in this small community, living upon the land, agriculturally based, and their survival is dependent upon forces beyond their control. For example, they have to be dependent upon the herds migrating the same way year after year if they're going to have food. They're dependent upon the rains coming at the right time and the right amount and not too much if they're going to have crops. They're dependent upon locusts not coming through and killing all of those crops and therefore leading to the cattle dying even if the cattle do herd and move the way they're supposed to. They live subject to fear that what happens if the fever comes into the village and wipes out half the village before it moves on? Now, all these examples I just gave you, we would look at those and say, well, that's, that's, just, that's just how things work. We can look at scientific understandings and we just know our world. That's how the world works. But in these simple communities, they don't understand that. And what they do then is they personify these natural forces and they link them to deities which is where you end up with a, with a God of the sky, a God of the sun, a God of the moon, a God of the water, a God of the seasons, a God of the earth, a God of fertility, a God of illness. And, and they personify all of these natural forces because they believe the universe is not governed by natural forces. They believe the universe is governed by the will of gods. And they believe that those gods are fickle. And so if we're going to influence them, have some sort of control over them, that requires us to sacrifice, to, to follow rituals, to be obedient to what these personifications of natural forces require. And we have the emergence of religion based upon an under-God idea. Now, we also see this in, in Western, uh, sorry, in, in Eastern religions. If you were to travel or study Eastern religions, you would come across uh, a lot of belief in this thing you've probably heard of called karma. It's a similar principle, that what happens to you is the universe responding to your actions. This idea of you reap what you sow. If you put in good, you take good out. If you put in bad, you take bad out. This idea that your present affects your future. And maybe not even just your future in the next week or whatnot, but it could be future lives even. And there's this, this idea, this cause-effect type of relationship between the material and the ethereal. When I first moved to Edmonton, well, 15 years ago, my first job was at the airport, working graveyard shifts with, uh, in, in a transportation division, which means that whenever a taxi arrived at the airport, I had to check him in and check him out. And being the graveyard shift, there wasn't a whole lot of people, not a whole lot to do, so you sit around and you talk to these cab drivers as they're waiting for planes to arrive and different fares to come and go. And as, as we're familiar, a lot of these men were of Eastern descent. And so I had a first-hand encounter with this cause and effect understanding of how they viewed the world and how they viewed my relationship with them. And I had to be careful because they would accidentally do me favors. Because then in their mind, I owed them something. 
And, and the whole idea was they were trying to kind of set me up to give them a kind of a free fare or give them a, a, you know, jump to the front of the queue. And so if they brought me a tea or if they, if they came and said a nice compliment to me, these sorts of things, they would expect that, therefore, they would get something positive in return, even if I hadn't asked for it. And even if they asked me to do something I couldn't do because, well, I would lose my job for doing what they wanted me to do, they would have words along the lines of, well, that's okay, that's fine. Just don't forget what I did, and I trust that God will look after it. They had this idea of what you put in, you take out. And this comes from all these different cultures and expressions of this. It tends to come from this feeling that people don't like to be passive victims of chance. That they wanted, they had this need to develop elaborate systems based upon superstitions and able to gain a means of influence and control over otherwise unpredictable forces. And if we believe that we have control over some of these unpredictable forces, it makes us less fearful of them because I'm doing something. I'm controlling, I'm influencing, I'm gaining things as opposed to just passively being influenced by it. Now, what does this look like in more structured monotheistic religions? Monotheistic meaning worshiping one God, and, and these tend to be more organized and more familiar to us. Things like Judaism and Christianity and Islam. Well, you find some common messages in there too, and you find the same principles. But the way that that finds expression is quite often we try to win favor with God or we try to control our place in God's view of us through rituals and through morality. And the message typically goes to something like, sorry, got ahead of myself there. <laughs> and the message typically goes something like, if you obey the rules, if you, if you worship God properly, if you give generously, if you abstain from the things you shouldn't do and deny yourself the things that your, your evil, lustful body wants, if you do that, then you will be blessed. And, and for many, since we're, we're speaking in a Christian church here, for, for many believers of Christ, for many followers of Christ, the underlying motivation, this is the posture that we develop towards our relationship with God. But here's the irony of the life under God posture, is that living under him is actually a means of trying to exude control over him. Because if we have the strict adherence to this moral law, if we strictly adhere to and obey these regulations, then he owes us something. Or at least at minimum, then I set myself up to be blessed and receive something, which is actually a truer motivation. There's a story in, in the book with that, that Skajitani refers to of a, of a wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills named Steve Johnson. And in here, he demonstrates this force. And a few years ago, Steve Johnson is in a game with his team, the Buffalo Bills, against Pittsburgh Steelers. It was a very close game, a tight game the whole way through, to the point where it goes into overtime. And during overtime, the team has an opportunity to win the game as the quarterback throws a pass into the end zone, and there is Johnson ready to receive the pass, and yet he drops it. And then they lose the game at the end. Well, as the team goes back to the locker room, Steve Johnson reaches into his, his locker and pulls out his iPad, goes on Twitter, and blasts out a tweet against God, where he says, I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me. You expect me to learn from this? How? I will never forget this, ever. It's his response to the situation. Now, the theology of Johnson that's revealed here is this vivid example of the life under God posture, 
where in anger, he expresses that he understands religion to mean a control over unpredictable forces. In this case, the game. Is that if I'm doing my part, God, why can't you do your part and let this all work out in the end where we win the game? But in the course of his argument, we actually find ourselves revisiting the original sin of the garden, where the the creature puts his will and authority above the creator. And we see the original sin of the garden all over once again. Now, here's the thing. The issue is not whether or not... See, the issue is not if we're doing good in God's instructions. I think we all know and we all agree that that's appropriate, that that's something that we should be doing. The issue is this. The issue is when morality slips into moralism. That's the issue. Let me unpack that for you. The issue is when morality becomes moralism. Morality is, is simply distinguishing between right and wrong, between good and bad. And we know, and it's true, that we should live according to God's instructions. They exist for our benefit. They exist for our protection. We believe that God knows what's best for us, and then when we live according to his word, we believe that it will go well with us, as Scripture tells us. That's morality. Moralism is a step beyond. Moralism is emphasis upon proper behavior, quite often at the exclusion of faith. This idea and the message basically being, if you don't lie, if you don't steal, if you don't cuss and fuss, you're a good person deserving of heaven. And those who do, hallelujah. Those who, who don't avoid these things, I don't know. That judgment starts to come out. Condemnation begins to come out. And quite often, a person who is stuck in this moralistic mind frame, frame of mind begins to cast out those who don't quite measure up to what they've determined are the bare minimum requirements of behavior. And you know what? Those who get cast out at that point are quite fine with being cast out because they've been turned off from the whole Christian experience at that point. You see, this posture and the tactics that go with it, they tend to keep ourselves and others from fully experiencing life the way that God intended. Now, the message isn't always that explicit. But there's this old adage that we promote, or sorry, that we celebrate what we promote. And sometimes people will say, I obeyed, I served, I give, I volunteer, and things went well for me. And so then we hold that person up as a model to be followed. This is the ideal. You do what they did, and it equals this. But is that the message of Scripture? is the message of Scripture that if you do good, you'll have a good life. Is that the experience that most people have? Because what happens when a person, in particular in our day and age, a young adult, keeps their end of the bargain, I obeyed, I served, I gave, I volunteered, I contributed to my community, I did my part, why isn't God keeping his? This is a major contributing factor to the growing number of people who are de-churched and to the growing number of people who are disenfranchised with the church. I obeyed, I served, and I still dropped the pass. I obeyed and I served and my marriage is still struggling. I did the things I was told I needed to do, but I didn't get the job or I didn't get into the college. People don't often leave the church because they don't like Jesus. Quite often they leave the church because 
of the experience they had with him and his people is different than what they are promised. But the problem actually goes outside the church too. When this message of life under God is allowed to take root and it becomes the message that the world hears and has negative consequences as well. You see, going back to our understanding of how this life under God works, where, where do we determine that there are natural forces that just sort of happen, or is everything the will of a God? And the world, who's still trying to figure out who is God and where does that fit into my life, when, when they're told that disaster, disease, and death are not by chance, but rather, because you are bad, a vindictive God is choosing to punish you, if that's the message they hear, it leads to fear. It leads to a point of fearing God. It makes him unapproachable. It gives ammunition to atheists to make him out to be evil. And now, that may not be the explicit message that comes out, but you may encounter people who have heard something like that if you've heard a person in the community say the words along the lines of, you know, I, I would love to come to church with you, but I think I've got to get cleaned up first before I go. Or somebody says, and I've heard this a number of times, or somebody says, you know, I, 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 I can't go in that place. If I go in there, I will literally catch on fire. You heard somebody say that before? Any of those phrases? Now, I don't think they believe they will literally catch on fire, but I, it's more than just an offhanded comment because it goes to their understanding of who they are, who God is, and how we relate to each other. And there is a belief, even if it's not literally catching on fire, it's a literal belief that if I walk into his presence, I will offend him by my presence. If I walk in there and I offend him, then I will be punished because I'm life under God. I used to run an alpha course in a previous church I worked at, and we had rather large groups who would come out to it, and we couldn't fit them in any other room but in the sanctuary. And so for the video component, we would, we would kind of usher everybody in after dinner into the sanctuary to watch the video. And the first time we did this, uh, there were, uh, people were pretty nervous to be going in there. Remember, these are people who, who do not have a relationship with the Lord. They probably had not been in church in the past. And this is one of their first experiences, not just with the people, but with the building. And they had ideas of what that meant to be in a church building. And so as we're ushering them into the sanctuary, there's a group who are really nervous. There's a group of ladies who are nervous to come in. And I kind of walked in with them, like, no, it'll be okay. Come on in. Just sit at the back. It'll be fine. We walked in, and they turned around and literally ran out. I thought I had offended them and done something to offend them. But I went out to say, what's, what's the challenge? What's the problem? And they were a little nervous walking to the sanctuary, but the minute they saw a cross, they, they felt they could not be, they were not worthy, they couldn't be in the presence of the cross because of what it signified to them. And they ran out. In a program designed to reveal the truth and the love and grace of Jesus Christ to them, they could not enter into the room where that is supposed to be proclaimed. Why? What was it that they had come to understand? What had they heard that made them think they needed to fear God rather than seeing God as the one who loves them, as the one who gave his all to be with them? Well, they had come to see this life under God understanding, a, a distortion of our relationship with him, a distortion of Christian faith and the Christian God that makes God unapproachable, which is such a shame when the exact opposite is true, that he is approachable, that he does invite us, he does want us to come. But again, the problem is not morality. The problem is moralism. You see, the issue is that when moral, morality slips into moralism, we then become blind to seeing the presence and the truth of Jesus Christ.
There's a great example of this that we find in, in John chapter 9. It's an encounter Jesus had with, uh, with his disciples, some of the Pharisees, and a man who was born blind. We're going to have a peek at that now in, in John chapter 9. Before we do, I'll give you a bit of background. See, there's a prominent belief of the day. A prominent belief that, that God blessed the righteous and he cursed the unrighteous. The belief of the day was that if you obey God's commands, you would be able to avoid disease. You would gain wealth. You would have favor with God and with man. Sound familiar? That was a common belief of the day, this life under God posture. And, and there was a belief that the, the equation worked in reverse as well. Or if you didn't follow through, the exact opposite of these things would happen to you. So therefore, it was believed in that time and day that you could assume a lot about a person based upon their physical condition, their social status, and the actions that you observe them doing. You could assume a lot about a person. And so as Jesus and the disciples are walking down the road one day, they come across a man who was blind from birth. And the disciples stop in front of this blind beggar. They stop and they, they point to him and they go, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? The belief was one of them must have sinned. That, that's their paradigm. This man is blind from birth. Before he even came out of the womb, he was blind. Therefore, it must have been God's will, God's design. God must have made him born blind because his parents sinned, or there's even a belief at the time that you could sin while in the womb. So maybe even he sinned before he was born, and therefore he was born blind. So they ask this question based upon that paradigm. And Jesus surprises them by giving them a third option that they had never thought of before. They didn't know this third option existed. And he says, well, neither. It wasn't him or what, nor his parents. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, this is a powerful statement that I wish we could unpack more, but we don't have time to get into all of it today. But he's basically suggesting that sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes we have hardships and we have struggles and we suffer in life, but not as a punishment, but as an opportunity. An opportunity for God to show up in ways that we never imagined possible. For God to show up in ways that we thought were beyond our wildest dreams. That doesn't mean that God causes these things, but it means that God can use these things to teach us, to help us to grow in our understanding of him, and to experience him and enter into a relationship with him. And to remind us that ultimately we need him and can't just trust in ourselves. And so after saying this, Jesus kneels down and, and he, he, he spits on the ground and takes some of the dirt and the spit and he makes it into some mud compresses. And he puts that mud on the man's eyes. And he tells the man, now go and wash and, and go wipe away that mud off your eyes. And so the man does. He, he walks down to the water and, and as he, he starts to wipe off the dirt, as, as the dirt starts to come off, so does the blindness to the point where he, he opens his eyes and he can see. Now, we shouldn't be surprised if this man is overjoyed with the fact that he can see. He's been blind since birth, and for the first time in his life, he's able to put faces with a name. He's finally able to understand what color is, and red is his favorite color. He just can't get enough red because he can see color for the first time in his life. And he wants to make sure that everybody he meets knows what has happened to him, but they don't believe him. And we can't really blame him. A person blind for decades, who we know is a blind, poor beggar at the side of the road, suddenly he's jumping around, telling us that it's me, I can see, I can see. And we're thinking, how many fingers am I holding up? we got to prove this. Okay, well, he can see, but it must not be him. It must be some imposter, somebody who looks like him. 
But finally he convinces them that this is indeed the man once blind who can now see. And so now the crowds are left with another question. How? How is this possible? And so the man tells them, well, Jesus did this. I was blind, he came, there's the mud, I washed, I can see, and here I am. Now we could end the story here and have this nice feel-good message about trusting God and, and his goodness. But this is actually just the beginning of the story. Because now that a miracle has happened, and the crowds can't fully understand how in the world this miracle took place, they go to the experts. So they take this man to the experts of the things of God. They take this man to the experts of the, of, of the, of the religion, of theology, because they think, well, maybe they have the answers for us. Maybe they can explain to us how this happened. And as they approach the Pharisees, it's at this point in the story that we're given the important detail that all of this was taking place on the Sabbath, upon the day of rest. And so as this man comes before the Pharisees, they, they question him, and he tells them the story. I was blind, and then Jesus came by, and he put mud, and I washed it, and here I am, I can see. And suddenly we have two divergent groups. Suddenly amongst the Pharisees themselves, there's two perspectives on the incident that begin to emerge. And we see them both, both in verse 16, where it says, one group says, this man, Jesus, is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He can't be from God. See, they have this staunch position that there are sabbatical laws, and if you break the sabbatical laws, then you are sinning. If you're sinning, you're not from God, so this could not be happening. Now, how did Jesus sin? Here, here's the sin that they're talking about. Is that you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And work included things like kneading dough. And because Jesus had spat in some dirt and did this, before putting the mud on the man's eyes, he had broken the Sabbath law. Because they interpret that as having worked. We can see moralism in full view. As this narrow perspective leads them to pass judgment, immediate judgment, upon who Jesus is. And they are blind to see the work of God right before them. But then also in verse 16, there's another group who says, well, hold on a second. How could a sinner perform such signs? So this other group is saying, hold on, guys, maybe it's not that simple. Maybe you haven't got God all figured out. Maybe there's more going on here because we can't deny this guy was blind and now he can see. And, and I don't know, who could do that but God? They're kind of saying to this other group of Pharisees, you fit God into a box and, and we're familiar with your box because we've studied the same box. But God just shot an arm out of that box. And instead of pretending that arm doesn't exist, we're going to take a second and have a look at it. And in healing this man, Jesus just shot an arm out of their God-sized box that these Pharisees had. Now this divided them. They didn't know what to do with it. So they call in the parents. They call in the man's parents. They go, well, maybe, maybe it's not him. Maybe, maybe they're... There's some sort of ruse that's going on here. So they call in the man's parents. They go, is this your son? Was he born blind? Well, and how in the world can the guy see? And, and, and the parents don't know. The parents say, yeah, he was, he's our son. We've known him his whole life. He's our son. We, we raised him and cared for him, and he was going to take over the father's business, but blindness prevented him from doing so, and so all it was left for him to do was to be a beggar at the side of the streets, but we know him. We love him. It's our son. He has been blind since birth. But how he can see, or who opened his eyes, uh, we don't want to get into that with you. 
Now, on one hand, they're being honest because the parents couldn't answer the question. They, they weren't there. They don't know any more than anyone else knows how it happened. But on the other hand, in the way that they answer, there's a great fear within them. They're fearful. And there's an emphasis in their response to say, don't ask us, ask our son. There's shifting responsibility back to him. Ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. I know he's blind or was blind, but he can speak for himself. Don't ask us. Ask him. They're, they're trying to push the buck back to him. Why? Why would they do that to their son? Well, verse 22 tells us. The parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. You see, they were operating in this life under God posture, and it was leading to what I mentioned before. It leads to fear in those who are either part of or outside of the community. Fear is the outcome that emerges in this situation. And this is very serious for them. The synagogue was the center of life. And if you were cut off from the synagogue, you no longer had the ability to, to socialize with people who were still part of it. You were not able to come and worship. You were not even to have certain levels of commerce. And so it was a matter of your ability to live and survive was hanging in the balance of how they answered the Pharisees' questions. Because if they had a divergent opinion, if they said, well, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe God did something here that doesn't fit into your box, they could be cast out. They would be condemned. And so not getting any satisfaction from the parents, they bring the son back in and question him a second time. And they swear him to tell them the truth. And, and they do so by starting off in an interesting fashion. The way that they, they compel him to tell the truth is they say, look, before you say anything else, we know this man's a sinner. So don't tell us any of this miraculous stuff because we know this man's a sinner. So tell us now what happened. And so finally, the man who was once blind just... It, He's got nothing left to say. And he says, a sinner? I don't know anything about that. That's, that's not my place to know. not my place to judge if he's a sinner or not. I don't know. But here's what I do know. I do know that one thing I was tr know of is I was blind, but now I see. And the second thing is that I know that because of that encounter, my whole life, inside and out, has been completely changed. And now I'm a follower of Jesus. And he gets thinking, well, I had an encounter with Jesus. Now I'm following him. These guys keep asking about the encounter. Maybe they want to be followers of him as well. And so he asks them, do you want to follow Jesus as well? I think he was either very, very bold or completely socially unaware of what was going on. He's like, maybe you want to be a follower too. And at that the man's parents' fears are completely confirmed as they cast him out, as they condemn him, as they ridicule him and hurl insults at him and kick him out of the synagogue. But before he leaves, he says to them, you know what's remarkable? It's remarkable that you who are the experts of the law, you who are the ones who, who know everything about the things of God, and yet you don't know who healed me. You don't recognize what's happening. Because it doesn't fit, you just write it off. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. You've stated that yourselves. He only listens to the godly who do his will. So guys, maybe there's more going on here than you're willing to see. Because if it's not from God, then he could do nothing. See, the Pharisees' problem wasn't knowledge. They had knowledge. It wasn't a problem of knowledge of the word of God. It was that their morality had moved into moralism.
and they became blind to seeing God right in front of them and what he was doing. Now, we're not saying by any means that obeying God is wrong. We're not saying by any means that it's bad. Clearly it's not. I think we'd all understand that clearly it's not. And Jesus was very clear. Jesus very clearly ties obedience to being a disciple. If we just go back one chapter, John chapter 8, verse 31, he says to uh, some Jews who had believed, he says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. That's pretty clear cut. This combination between obeying and being a disciple, that's clear cut. But look carefully at what the verse also says. It actually posits two conditions. There are two conditions in this verse to being really a disciple. The first one we see here is that he's talking to people who believed in him. And the audience is very important to understanding why Jesus says what he says. He's talking to people who already believed in him, who had already made a confession of faith, who already knew that he was the Messiah. They believed he was the Messiah. And like the blind man, they had chosen to become a follower of Jesus. They had already entered into a relationship with him. And it wasn't based upon their obedience or upon their goodness. It was based upon their belief in who he was. And we know that because he has to inform them that the next step, the thing that flows out of that, is to hold to my teachings. You're already in relationship with me. If you want to continue to grow in that, if you want to continue to grow in your understanding and live that out, that's where the obedience comes. That's where the awareness comes in. And we can't just have one out of the two. Because if we have belief but not obedience, it falls short. That's like saying that, you know, I know you're the Messiah, but that whole Messiah thing, that's in the life to come. For now, I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. And, and I'll catch up with you, you know, on my deathbed. Well, there's the other side of it where it's obeying but not believing. Where we say, you know, that whole son of God thing, eh, I'm not so sure about that. But good words to live by. I, I, I can live by your words. I, I don't believe, but I'll obey. It doesn't work. Jesus was very clear that it doesn't work when he said in another section at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Relationship without obedience. And many will come to me and say on that day, did we not prophesy? Didn't we drive out demons? Didn't we perform any miracles? But I'll proclaim to them, I, I didn't know you. Obedience without relationship. And he says to both of these, I never knew you. See, Christian moralism reduces the Bible to a manual of moral behavior. Pray, go to church, serve the community, and that makes you good with God. And with such a focus upon moral behavior, it minimizes and at times in extreme examples eliminates the role of faith. And along with that, the concept of grace is obscured. And it's sometimes cast aside because it's inconvenient and it doesn't fit in the box. Grace doesn't fit in that box. But this is the message we're given. The message we're given and how we get right with God, we find in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. You see, moralism is no replacement for the good news because there's bad news. The bad news is that we're all sinners. The bad news is that all of us are in need of God's forgiveness and we're all in need of his grace. 
And if we live our life under God in that posture, it keeps our eyes on the bad news. Because we're always focused upon the areas and the ways that we're not succeeding. We're always striving to do things, to get better, to clean up, so we can enter into his presence and be pleasing to him. But the end result of that is fear. Fearing, what if I don't? What if I don't do enough? Or worse yet, when all of a sudden it gets pointed out that we're not doing enough, guilt and shame. Without any sense of a way to be set free. Without any way to actually experience God so that we can be set free. That's the bad news. But the good news, the good news is that we don't have to save ourselves. That because of God's love for us, he sent Jesus to us. He outstretched his arm and Jesus gave his life in our place to pay the price for our sins so that there was a way that we could be set free, so that there was a way that we could enter into relationship with God. You see, we don't need to make ourselves holy no matter how stringently we observe the moral law, we can't make ourselves holy. But by God's grace, grace, that, that unearned favor, that unearned merit, we can be saved. We can be set free. We can be free from the condemnation. And then once we are set free and in relationship with the Father through the Son, then we continue our journey, our life with him, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit comes to dwell among us and within us, then we are continually exposed to him and to the word of God, which is where we find obedience and maturity growing hand in hand. As we're experiencing the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we grow in maturity and awareness. And it is the life that God leads us towards that gives us the motivation and the power for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of who he is and the difference it makes in our lives. Are Christians to live morally? Yes, Absolutely. Is God concerned with your behavior? Yes, absolutely. But can a life under God posture replace the role of faith in your relationship with Christ? No, it can't. Good behavior will never replace the role of faith, the necessity of grace. If we're going to have God who people see as approachable so that they can come forward, so that they can experience him, so they can receive his forgiveness, so they can get those parts of themselves cleaned up that they already know. The, the, the guilt and the shame is not a negative thing either if there's a way out. And Jesus Christ is that way out. And that's the beautiful part of the good news. You can't have good news without bad news. We know the bad news, but life under God continues that. We need to move beyond that to understand that we need to have life with God, with the Father through the Son who gave his all that we could be set free and to know him. So I don't know where you find yourself in the midst of that, different encounters you may have had in your own life, messages you've received. Remember we spoke last week, and, and, and Ryan spoke a bit this morning, about how we need to have that breath when we come out from under that thumb that was never meant to be there in the first place. When God invites us, to come and to know his goodness, to get cleaned up, to deal with those parts of our lives that, that are not honoring to him so that we can know him in a fuller sense and continue to grow with him, but then also invite others to come because he loves them and died for them as well. In closing, I invite you if you would stand with me for closing prayer. And as, as we bow our heads, I just want to ask you a couple questions. There's, there's a challenging aspect to, to the stuff 
I've been talking about today. Because there's a fine line. Sometimes you see there's this fine line between obeying and morality and moralism. And, and it's a serious issue for us to kind of contemplate in our own minds. I know it's one that I've wrestled with all week. Is there one area, is there multiple areas in my life where, where I need to confess that? So I want to give you an opportunity now to, to kind of go through that in your own mind. Is, are there relationships? Are there situations? Are there certain things where you're just like, no, it's wrong? And yet, it's true. God's word is clear. But also, he wants us to present him as approachable. He wants us to approach him. There's an area in our lives where we need to approach him more and to lay those areas down. Or perhaps you're here today and you've heard this message of, of this life under God idea and, you, and you're not even sure why you're here because you're just fearful. And when you walk out, that he's going to punish you for being in his presence. So I'll give you the opportunity today to know that he loves you. That he died for you. That he wants to do life with you. And I invite you to pray with me as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all of us have aspects in our lives that there are times that align, at times are challenging. At times we, we, we have areas that, we have these boxes we build that, that you have a way of shooting your arm out of. I pray, God, that, that whatever that may look like in some of the people here in my own life, that we'd have the, the courage to, and the humility to, to wrestle with that and to face it. To, to challenge any ways that we may be given an idea of who you are that is actually repelling people instead of drawing them towards you. Any ways that are keeping them from coming into community with you. God, for those who are here with us today who maybe have never taken that step of faith, I'd, I just pray right now that, that if that is you and you're here, that Lord, that, that your grace and your truth would both reign in their lives. That they'd understand that we are all sinners of whom you love and died for. That before we got cleaned up, you loved us. Before we got cleaned up, you died for us. God, I pray that as we're challenged with these things, that you just do work in us, and that we would see the fruits of that labor. As we talked last week about fruits, Lord, that the people around us would see a, a message that is truly revealing your love and grace for them. And that we would then walk and grow in the truth of who you are in these days ahead. Pray this all in Jesus' name.